so I'm back in it, folks. Tis the season. It's always the season, but I had taken a, a little bit of a break, and now I'm fully back in my Grady's routine. I have my my brew bag brewing brewed up a fresh fresh batch and it just uh so did i man is it is it hitting me well but it, this came not without some complications and some heartbreak tell us what you went through winston well <clears throat> i i have a it's okay I have buddy a pa- i have a package we're here for I have you a package thief a package thief in my building that sporadically will go on a rampage and packages will disappear the night after they're delivered. If you, if you're, um, you know, in the COVID thing and you don't go out for a day and you don't get a delivery notification, you might not know that it's sitting there. And then before you know it, it's gone. And this happened with my first Grady's shipment. Take a minute if you need it. Gracious, graciously Grady, graciously Grady agreed Gracious Grady, gracious as we know Grady, him sometimes. Gracious Mr. Laird <laughs> agreed to replace the missing brew kit and send me a new one. But the greedy Grady's grabber <laughs> grabbed it before you could. And what he and what he said is that he hopes that the thief will become a Grady's fan. I do too, because it, as hard as it was to go through that, maybe the, the thief will purchase Grady's above board next time and be, be converted. Gracious Grady granted good forgiveness to the greedy Grady's grabber. Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I'll say amen to that. Because <laughs> that's what Grady does. That's what he does, folks. Now, Grady's Cold Brew is operated out of the Bronx. You know, they've been sponsoring our podcast uh, officially or unofficially uh, for a long time now. You can go on Grady'sColbrew.com, check out their vast selection. You got jugs, you got boxes, you got brew kits, you've got great cocktail recipes. They got baking recipes here. Yeah, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of um, recommendations of how you can uh, incorporate Grady's into your life in all sorts of ways. So that's at Grady'sColbrew.com. If you go on there and you make your first purchase, you can use the code LATEERA20 and get 20% off if you're a uh, U.S. resident. So go check that out, folks. And before you take your first sip, say a little thank you, Grady. Just thank Grady. It's not hard. Grady, we thank you. Amen. Praise Grady. Here's the episode we're on later. Yo, what's up, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Late Era, the podcast brought to you by Osiris Media, where we talk to you and each other about the weird, wild, wonderful, deranged late career albums of classic musicians. My name is Andy Cush. I'm a contributing editor at Pitchfork. I play bass in Garcia Peoples. My name is Winston Cook-Wilson. I uh, make music in the band Office Culture and as Winston CW. What's up? I'm Sam Sadomsky. I'm a staff writer at Pitchfork. I make music as BCI, Bird Calls Inc., all kinds of things. Happy to be here. Human Touch and Lucky Town, both released on March 31st, 1992, which means today, the day that we're recording this episode is the 29th anniversary of the release of both of these records, which we... uh, 
we're not planning on, but it's serendipitous. Uh, we're talking about Bruce Springsteen, if I haven't said that already. These are his ninth and 10th albums, sort of first to be produced entirely without the involvement of the E Street Band. The reason that uh, I was first interested in talking about these, and I'm sure Sam will feel differently, but it seems to me that, you know, after Springsteen's first eight albums, like every single one of those records is like a stone cold, hands down classic. I can't think of a period in any artist's career that so definitively signals like, this is the end of the classic run and the start of whatever the next thing is, as the release of Human Touch and Lucky Town by Springsteen, which were pretty brutally panned by critics at the time. His fans, I understand, didn't particularly like them. And coming off such an amazing run uh, of the last 20 years uh, before that, I was personally fascinated to know like what sort of went wrong, if anything went wrong, or was the public reception to this record wrong? And uh, is there is this, uh, you know, every bit as good as uh, one of those first eight records? When we decide episode topics, I can be kind of a stickler for the like, making sure people are really actually old and decrepit yeah. and that it's a full three decades on and all that. But ultimately for me, what pushed me over the edge is the look that he had during this time. <laughs> so iconic. And the concept of him changing coasts and getting like the sleeveless shirts going and like either the goatee and the bandana or the clean shaven look. He is, exudes an energy, sort of like a goals style icon type thing to me. And so that made me think I'd like to bend the rules for it. Yeah, I think all that's true. Um, and I think that this is the era, if we're going to be talking about the things we talk about on this podcast as they relate to Springsteen, this is the period to go to because it really is that moment where it's like you don't know what's going to come after it. And he does kind of have that sense of, well, what do I do now? You know, he kind of acts older than he is on these records and I think he also took into consideration the idea of like, I had my moment, now other people are having their moments. So here, so what do I do in that context? Which I think is the subtext to a lot of late era albums we talk about. Let's just say right now, this is a giant moment because this is Sam's favorite artist of all time. And he is yes. one of the, if not the reigning Springsteen critic around He's the authority. Oh, thank you. Thousands and thousands of brilliant words about the man that are actually compiled in one place, in book form. That's true by my coworker, Matthew Strauss. And I have a couple copies left that I haven't wow. sold on eBay. So if anyone wants it, you can hit me up. Shout out, Matt Strauss. Uh, Shout out. Devoted supporter of both of our podcasts and... Uh, our music and just a radiant force in our lives. I'm afraid to speak too much. I mean, Sam is just a fountain of knowledge. It's like, turn that spout right on. We're going to get the full fascinating backstory behind these two albums, all 24 tracks of them. Yeah, I mean, I I love talking about Springsteen. This is like right in the zone where I find his career especially fascinating. So I'm also just stoked to talk about it with my boys who I know also have strong opinions about Bruce. 
This is also the first trio episode we've done in a long time. Yeah, no guests. Which always feels like a back to basics kind of let's let's get it together. Let's see where we're at. Let's really shine in our what we do best. We're all getting vaccinated and Sam yeah. just got his first shot. Yeah. Um, Today? No, I got it on uh Monday. Yeah. Congrats. Thanks. Did you feel any nasty after effects? I did. I'm still kind of like going through it a little. It's been delayed. Like I would say today, which is like two days after is probably like my worst day so far. But you know what? It's worth it. Got to get this vax. And a little bit of advice is like, so I was in the waiting room waiting to get it. And I waited maybe like 35 minutes. And I was like, I'm just going to hit the bathroom real quick. And while I was in the bathroom, they called my name. This guy said to me, he was like, hey, they called you, buddy. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, shoot. And then I had to wait a little longer. So my advice is hold it in, which I guess we'll talk about that a little bit too, maybe. Mm-hmm. But uh, hold it in if you can mm-hmm. and just wait to get the shot. You barely feel it when they put it in. And you can just hit the bathroom, hit the turlet right after, do whatever you got to do. The turlet, nice. Winston, you you got your first shot. Like, uh, are you fully vaxxed? Are you double dose at this point? I'm getting a little Easter surprise in my arm. Okay, this Sunday. Oh. All right, bada wow. bing. Yes, get it going. Andy, when's your when's your first shot? Tomorrow morning. My and goodness. I'm going Johnson and Johnson. So my first and last shot is tomorrow morning. Wow! Wow! Amazing. I'm getting a shot that is being distributed by a holistic pharmacist who's based in Woodstock and they're distributing the shots out of an abandoned Best Buy in this sort of like strip mall section of Kingston where I live. So I do feel like I'm living in some kind of like (laughs) Thomas Pinchon (laughs) slash like late capitalist dystopia (laughs) thing. Yeah, this is whatever it is. This is the last chapter of the book you're in. So enjoy it. Don DeLillo or something maybe. (laughs) This means we're all getting different ones. Which is also fascinating. Yes. So, because you got uh, Pfizer, right? I got the Big P. Yeah, I got Moderna's. So we'll just have to figure out which one works better, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It could be a va- there could be a Vax corner in upcoming episodes. Vax corner. We talk about in. talk about side effects for all the Vaxes, and also really try actively to see if maybe we can get COVID despite the vaccine. Yeah, that would be definitely kind great con- great content for the pod if we could make that happen. Anyway. Yeah, in other news, uh, you, well, you were constipated. <laughs> yes, uh, I've also, I was sick. I had a, a stomach something, food poisoning, and uh, then I had an extended tale of constipation, which we were just having a nice little discussion about before we started taping. This is all the kind of stuff that the kind of quotidian energy of life and just getting older and trying to figure out what it's all about, pare it down to the essence. That's kind of like what these albums feel like they're about a little bit to me. Um, yeah, the nitty gritty. So I'm surprised there's not a song about being constipated on Human Touch, to be honest with you. <laughs> Nothing there, Sam? Yeah, you know, that was that was a big oversight. Yeah. Sam's just steaming. He's so offended. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, that's a cool point. Furious. <laughs> that's the kind of insight we like to bring. Andy, do you want to talk about the big development in your life? Oh, yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. I guess I have a few things. First, real quick, I was just on, 
a cool podcast called Beatles vs. Stones uh, talking about Tattoo You, which is one of my favorite Rolling Stones albums. And it's one of those things, sort of what Winston was just talking about. It's not quite late enough for us to talk about on our podcast, but it's later than the the zone of Rolling Stones that they talk about on their podcast. Um, so we had a nice chat on it, and that that was that's out if anyone wants to hear it. The update that Winston is referring to is that I'm going to be starting, I think, as a bartender uh, at a local restaurant. Yes. Uh, so, you know, if you're in the Hudson Valley, um, come see me. Maybe perhaps you remember my new bit about paranoia. So I'm not going to talk about where it is on the air. But if you want to hit me up uh, privately, I'd be happy to, to let you know where you can swing by and see me. And then the thing that I really wanted to talk about is that I have one or more rats uh, living under the porch in my backyard uh, oh. that have become more bold as uh, the weather has gotten a little warmer. And this afternoon, as I was going to go take a walk to Walgreens and buy some toilet paper to bring it back to the constipation thing, while listening to Lucky Town, uh, a rat ran out from under the porch and a hawk swooped down from out of nowhere into my yard and just missed catching and killing this rat, but the rat got away. So rats prevail at least on March 31st 2021 that really feels like an omen or some kind of symbol yeah i'm like sitting here like what does it mean (laughs) are you the rat are you the hawk Mm. yeah or they represent bigger forces outside of andy that america is the hawk to me not everything's about america um well this i mean this is the springsteen episode so (laughs) everything just feels so heavy with symbolism to me you know what i mean right now so true truly symbolic times congratulations to andy for getting a a non-media job my plan to extricate myself from media is well underway that's great bona fortuna bona fortuna you know i hate it when (laughs) sam says that normally but i'm gonna agree (laughs) bona fortuna to you sir yeah it's one of my many catchphrases and i i've been having this conversation recently um with some friends and posing this question i'll pose it to the group how many people do you know that are actually happy in their jobs? I can count them on one finger of close friends. So I feel like going out, taking the step, Andy, figuring out what's there, enjoying the upstate life. I'm just really happy for what you will discover in this mode. Thanks, man. Because everyone that I know who has a job, like a nine to five job, seems miserable. I'm not one of them, by the way. I'm living on government checks right now, mostly. But it's tough out there. Yeah. I wonder I wonder if we could gin up some like right wing um controversy about the pod, like that you're sort of like a welfare burnout who's like hosting this decadent uh yeah. sort of liberally oriented podcast. Mm, that's like, true. That's all true. Yeah. I think maybe that's like we could idea. like le- leak this to like hotair.com or something like that. That's true. Yeah. And, Come uh, at me. Yeah. Daily caller. Yeah. Just a thought. That's great. I've been on like a big Cannibal Corpse tear lately. And that's definitely like part of their branding was like they pissed off the right people. And that allowed them to end up being the death metal band whose name everyone knows. I feel like we could be that, but for podcasts. That's great. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, we have a loathsome enough figure in (laughs) Winston who could be... Who could be a villainous yeah. figurehead? When I was introducing the constipation thing, I was 
thinking of like provoking like cannibal corpse. I was thinking of cannibal corpse kind of so. Um, Imagining like a conservative radio person like playing a clip of you doing your impression of Clive Davis. Like these are monsters. This is what our kids are listening to. <laughs> they think this is funny. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, do you before we get into things, do you I I just want to say before you do this. Yeah. This stock time thing that we oh, have, yeah. have this financial coin have fi- whatever the fuck I was very excited about it because I do want to learn to be rich. Um, uh-huh. The past two have been extremely disappointing, and I've gotten lots of complaints personally to me to, that people were complaining about you. So uh, you might want to give an actually helpful tip this time around. Well, this isn't the tip, but I will say, being an entrepreneur, step one is patience. I mean, these are the kind of people who would read the first page of How to Win Friends and Influence People and be like, oh, I don't know how to win friends. It's like you have to learn. You have to listen. You have to study. And it's kind of like, yeah, well, if I weed out some of the people who are just in it, like, oh, I heard about Robin Hood. I want to make a million. Well, no, you have to really devote yourself to this. So, yeah, you're not, you know, a few people are going to be like, I don't have the time for this. And that's fine. I'm talking to the people who want to listen and want to learn. That's what my financial corner is for. And that's what it was always for. Okay. So do you have a, you have a tip? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> this week's tip is have a guru. Have someone, have someone who you can listen to and who can give you advice. That way you're under the tutelage of someone and you're always learning because a good entrepreneur is always learning. That should have, that was the whole concept. That's the, the precept <laughs> of you doing this thing is that you are the guru. We already know Lit- that. That's worse yeah, than the I other Yeah, I live by two. example. I don't, what's the problem? Wait, who's your guru? I cannot disclose that information. <laughs> Often you'll find a guru who wishes to remain anonymous. <laughs> mm. So famous yeah. anonymous guru. Week three, have a guru. Well, that was fucking trash. Wow. Not going to get anyone anywhere. I'm like losing money. I, I got the app. I'm trying stuff out. None of it's working. And If you follow my rules, I assure you that it will. the odds will turn in your favor. <sighs> Okay, well, I'll, you know, I, I got something for you. Uh, before you do your impression, I want to say this might be the biggest platform you ever have for your comedy. So <laughs> just keep that in mind when you're preparing these, when you're picking the subjects you want to do and rehearsing it. Because I know okay. you were, like you put a lot of work into right. these. Okay. You know, uh, what do you want me to say about it? I, I, I prefer to be on, I prefer to be the second guy. I don't, but you know, it's fun to be the boss for a while. You know, if I get... If I get a show, I get a show to myself, or I get a go to Polly Walnuts. Uh, nope. You get it. I get a. I'm a band leader myself. You know, I've been playing music with Brucey since the you know Jersey Shore in the '60s. You know, I've been a part of everything that uh, he does one way, one way or the other. You know, like uh, in the '90s, we're talking about uh, E Street uh, Band breaks Max, up. Uh, Max Weinberg. No, I was gonna say Southside Johnny. Oh, mm. there you go. No, you know he went off and wanted to make these records, uh, just uh, off in L.A. with uh, Roy and some guys, and I, I was like, uh, he played them for me. I was like, hey, why don't you redo them with the East Street Band? You know, like uh, let's let's get that energy behind it. And uh, you Gary know, Talent, <laughs> I uh, like a the, the big man. I like a. <laughs> Now imagine, no, imagine uh, you're in, uh, you're a wise guy, okay, in witness protection, 
and uh, you get oh, Steve Van Zandt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you said the Lilyhammer thing, I was like, now I know. <laughs> yes, that's a star of Lilyhammer, little Stevie Van Zandt, uh, also yeah. known for doing some stuff with Bruce. I'm gonna say once I realized who it was, I liked that impression quite a bit. Yeah, it was good. Thank yeah. you, thank you, and thank you, listeners. And uh, I hope you. I hope I'll get some positive <laughs> feedback this time for that. So that will take us right in. <laughs> Perfect lead into what we're going to talk about, which doesn't involve Steve Van Zandt at all, pretty much. Yeah, without a hitch. I think we should just either it starts with Sam or it starts with Bruce. Either it starts with why was Sam, as he told me before we were running uh, tape for the app here, why was Sam buying the CD single of? roll the dice when he was eight on Amazon. Yeah. That's, that's a question we could start with. Who is Bruce for Sam? Or who, let's tell the story of Bruce through Sam's eyes. I talk shit on Sam, but he is an incredible, compelling voice in the, when it comes to Springsteen. Not stocks, well, thank but you. Go, go, let's hear it. Well, I've spent way more of my life listening to Bruce's music than stocks. Stocks is a passion. Bruce is like my deep... <laughs> Okay, so I first became acquainted with Springsteen's music. I was like, maybe like five, and I was watching Kermit the Frog doing like the Dancing in the Dark parody on TV. And I asked my mom what it was, and she was like, oh, that's a song by Bruce Springsteen. Because as a kid, I was like kind of interested in music, but just like the way a kid is when I like, you know, kids' songs and like people who look like rock stars and cartoons or whatever. And so she could tell I was like really excited about the song itself and the music. And she had a copy of The Greatest Hits that came out in 95. And then one day when I was at kindergarten, she got me a copy of Born to Run on CD and Glass Houses by Billy Joel on CD. And as I talked about a little in the Billy Joel episode of this podcast, those were like kind of my first two musical loves. Like, I just remember sitting in the car after my mom got out, just listening to the CDs, because I think that was, like, where I the only CD player I knew how to operate was. Um, but, yeah, like, the Springsteen obsession really sustained itself. Like, in first grade, I was basically the kid who was, like, bringing a Bruce book that I got at Borders to school every day and, like, sitting it on my desk. And when we had free time, I was literally, like, drawing the ghost of tom joad cover art in my little journal like i still have these pictures i was like so sick like my teachers would write notes because we had to like write diaries and my teachers would write notes like this is very interesting sam like but is there anything besides bruce springsteen you like because it would literally just be like today i learned bruce springsteen has three kids one of them is named (laughs) sam today i learned you know it's just like all this stuff Like, it was, like, truly, truly all I cared about in, like, a kind of worrying way. Um, but, yeah, like, as I got older and I met other kids who liked music and I started using the internet, like, I basically first learned how to use the internet to look up Bruce stuff. Like, the first websites I went to were, like, fan sites like Greasy Lake and Backstreets. And there was this site called Bruce Legs where you would look at all the bootleg releases and you could scan the track lists and stuff. So you you were just looking at Bruce bootleg track lists that you couldn't even listen to. Exactly, because this is before <laughs> streaming and YouTube. So I literally would look at the track lists and look for song titles I didn't know. 
because like I slowly collected his whole catalog because anytime I had a birthday or Hanukkah or something, all I wanted was another Bruce CD. Yeah, I just like wanted to have his whole catalog. And like through that and like the websites is how I learned how to follow music and like follow an artist's discography. You know, because you start learning like, oh, he looks like this on this album cover. This was like a different aesthetic. How is it possible that these albums like came out right after each other? Um, if you would have asked me at the time what my favorite album was, I would have said Human Touch just because it was like a real rock album wow. and it felt current because it was the 90s and it was like the most recent thing he had done wow. that f was like the Springsteen I liked at the time, which was, you know, kind of the heavier stuff like Born in the USA and Murder Incorporated, those kinds of songs. Um and yeah, I remember also the newest release was Tracks, which is the big box set of outtakes, which I had to convince my mom to get for me because it was, you know, like a bigger thing. And, she, you know, she would look at it and be like, oh, we don't know any of the songs on it. I don't know if it's worth buying. But then when I heard that, it like totally exploded how I understood music because it was all these songs, you know, you would hear an early version of Born in the USA. You'd hear a song that sounds like Darkness on the Edge of Town, but wasn't on that album. It sounds like crazy and precocious, but I really then became obsessed with like music that way, where it was like, you want to know everything and you want to hear the things that are in between the albums people know about. I really felt as a kid that like Springsteen's catalog was like my own and it was like the world I chose to live in at the time. Which I feel like uh, your approach as a music fan, you always sort of dazzle me with your comprehensive knowledge of the artists that you like. I feel like mm -hmm. you still listen to music that way. It totally is. I mean, it's like, on one level, I always felt like ever since I was a kid, I was like trying to match that experience of like getting into an artist and loving it one thing more than the next, you know, and mm. just like immersing myself in it. And I do feel like the music I love the most kind of gives me the same feeling that I get from my favorite Springsteen songs, like that kind of emotional punch. It's like kind of like searching for that high that I got like the first time from just listening to everything in his catalog. Because also you have to remember at that time, it's like the late 90s. And so there isn't a lot of new Springsteen. It's kind of like the longest hiatus he had ever taken between The Ghost of Tom Joad and The Rising, mm -hmm. which was huge for me when that came out. Um so it really felt like this completed text that like begins with greetings from Asbury Park, goes through the 90s and kind of ends with tracks as this big collection. It was like a perfect time for someone to devote themselves to just studying all of it. Fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's inspiring and uh, touches my heart to hear you talk, tell those stories. It is amazing that as a kid, you were responding to human touch so much given sort of the nature of this album as being kind of slight in a, or just like, well, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, well, you also have to, like, as a kid, I was totally divorced from the cultural perception of Springsteen. Like, I truly, I lived in, like, a vacuum, like, in Reading, Pennsylvania, and there was, like, even if you look at, like, music websites from that time, they weren't really taking Springsteen seriously. Like, he hadn't really become, like, an indie figurehead. Like, I remember Mark Richardson's review of The Essential Springsteen from, like, 2003 for Pitchfork being, like, the first time I saw him even, like, held up as, like, an indie, like, a potential artist, like, 
yeah. that has a coolness factor. Yeah. I like I had no idea that human touch was, you know, like hated at the time. Mm-hmm. I all I knew was that like the songs weren't the ones that were on the greatest hits. Right. Can you uh put us in Springsteen's world around the time of Human Touch a little bit? Yeah, um I think you did a good job of like talking about this as after this imperial run. Because it's kind of like signed to Columbia in the early 70s as this new Dylan figure. It's kind of like a critical favorite up until Born to Run, which makes him this huge, not huge, but he becomes someone who's taken seriously and the label's putting money behind. Uh, with the E Street Band, becomes a huge touring figure around darkness. Has his first big radio hit with the river. So it's the steady incline that peaks with Born in the USA, this huge commercial hit in 1984. After that album, instead of sort of taking the easier route and trying to match the hits, he makes this really quiet, beautiful, sad album called Tunnel of Love, which is about self-doubt and marriage as my personal favorite Springsteen record ever. And then after that, he kind of goes through that same cycle of self-doubt himself. He divorces his wife, the actress Julianne Phillips, and he over the course of the tour for that album, decides to end the E Street Band and paparazzi photos leak of him with his bandmate, Patty Schialfa, having an affair, which is kind of the first public controversy he's ever faced in this constant uh, like incline. Mm-hmm. And he eventually marries her, leaves New Jersey, goes to New York City and L.A., uh, takes a long break from music for him, which is like five years without releasing anything. And when he returns, it is this, Human Touch and Lucky Town, these two albums that we're going to talk about. One, Human Touch, he really labored over and spent a long time assembling. And the other, Lucky Town, he put together really quickly in kind of a burst of inspiration at the very end of the sessions. So two very different albums. That's kind of a fascinating thing is that he labored over this album that People end up liking less, and then this burst of inspiration for one that kind of stands the test of time a little bit better. But uh, I just, I just want to get your sense, Sam, of what that period was like when he was sort of deciding to make Human Touch, writing those songs, why it took him so long, and and also why do it in L.A. with like the slick session guys right. rather than uh, with the E Street Band. I think that. His line that he would use in the press around the release of these albums with that was that he was feeling bruised out. <laughs> I think like the Born in the USA cycle. He even now when he talks about that album and that era, he seems kind of uncomfortable with it, just because he, for the first time, really sort of engaged with the mainstream in a way that he never had to before, or that sort of came naturally in the past, that lined up with trends. I mean, Born in the USA, he was making music videos and acting in them. He was doing dance remixes for his songs. He was on MTV all the time. I think after that, even Tunnel of Love was an album he made all on his own, but I think he felt the pressure to tour it with the E Street Band because he hadn't done a solo tour at that point. And on that tour, he's you know wearing a suit which is totally opposite of the Bruce image of like the working guy. He rearranged his bandmates on stage. He played Born to Run as this really sad acoustic ballad. I think he was really trying to not pigeonhole himself and sort of get away from the 
the icon who had been invented around this time. He's also doing therapy. This all sounds very like I'm in therapy. <laughs> like I'm trying to reckon with this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I think marrying Patty Scalfa and trying to be like, now I'm an adult. I'm not that guy who everyone knows. I need to have my own private life. Cause you really think like we talk about that insane run he had, but in order to do that, you really have to be totally devoted to your music. I mean, it makes sense that like he had never really been in a serious relationship during that time. He's making music with like the same dudes he, you know, grew up with. It is this really prolonged adolescence that I think took its toll on him by that point. So I think L.A. for him was a real... I mean, he sings about it in this outtake from the album called Going Cali, Which where great. it's kind of like, yeah, it's a cool song where it's, you know, you're not... The, and he also sings about it in a song called uh, Local Hero, which made Lucky Town, mm-hmm. where it's like in New Jersey, I think he felt sort of tied to his past and his image. And L.A. was a place where he could, you know, choose to be a little more anonymous, have more space, maybe be in a neighborhood where he wasn't the most famous person. Called up his friends and they said, come on out west, it's a place where a man can really feel his success. Like all that stuff, I think, is really reflected in the Human Touch material, which to me sounds like an album of songs where he's working around trying to sound like Springsteen. There's no saxophone on it. There's no politics on it. There's really no tension on it. It's like the songs are either totally like down and out or they're these kinds of like uplifting soul type songs. It's an interesting experiment to me because it's a type of album like The River where it's like throwing all these things at the wall to see if they work. But it still feels to me dominated by a singular mood or theme, which is maybe why it feels so long, because there isn't a ton of variety to me in the mood of it, even though there's a lot of different kinds of songs. But yeah, during that time, there's like, he's playing with Sessions musicians, he's doing some like quasi E Street Band music, he makes a ton of songs that are just bass and drums and vocals, which I think is a really cool sound. I think only 57 channels made the record, but there's a lot on the fourth disc of tracks that maybe is like a less novelty version of that sound. But he really is searching for like, okay, what do I do next? Right. And I don't think the answer really comes until he starts writing the Lucky Town material. It seems to me that so much of like the negative fan reaction to the record has to do with puncturing the myth of like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band of like yeah. now you're some like Hollywood guy. You're no longer like sweating it out with with the dudes who you came up with. Now you're you're like, you know, you're like slick. You're not someone I can like project my image onto anymore. But it's interesting it's interesting to hear that perspective of like why he might have wanted to kind of like actually puncture the myth sort of deliberately for his own sanity. Yeah. I think in the end it worked out for him because he really never made another album like this again. I think it was just something he had to get out of his system. And I think it was something he had to work through to get to better material or to get to what he really wanted to say. Mm -hmm. You know, he talked about how he, wanted to have a bounty of new material to play because when he toured again, he wasn't going to be with the E Street Band. So he didn't want to have a bunch of people playing like 
you know, old material associated with different musicians. And some of these songs you can really just feel like, oh, I need like a big rock song in the set or I need a song that's like a love song in the set. There really is that feeling of like, I need to invent a new artist and I need to invent his catalog and that will be my next move. I feel like it's an interesting CD era thing, this 14 tracks, and then it really kind of settles into Max kind of like generic, the man's job and real man both being in the second half. Real man is the low point for sure. It gets really sort of flat in in the end, which kind of is funny, like CD era thing, like... In the first, like, five, six tracks, you kind of think, oh, there is kind of a variety here. It doesn't feel so one-noted to me, you know? You mentioned 57 channels and talking about there being no politics or nothing kind of other than these broad-stroke romantic statements or just existential, I'm a guy that's alive type things. Uh, 57 channels is sticks out as like funny because it is sort of like a novelty song that maybe there's some commentary in it but not really uh and it has like an edgier quality because of the bass guitar and drum thing but it's just about a guy shooting his television it uh you know he talks about how nebraska is like influenced by suicide this song actually like sounds like suicide. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think this song is awesome. Like, I I don't particularly care for Human Touch in general as an album, but I sort of wish it was more like Fifty Seven Channels. I think that song's really cool. Doesn't really sound like any other Springsteen stuff. I mean, I'm interested to hear those outtakes you're talking about now. Yeah, there's cool outtakes that sound like it, but that one is definitely an interesting thing in his catalog where it's kind of like you 2 did something similar with The Fly being the first single from Actong Baby, mm-hmm. where it's because this was a single from Human Touch. And I think it was really like line in the sand. This is the new me, you know, no more classic rock, because I think Bruce must have felt really unfashionable. Like the time between Tunnel of Love in 87 and Human Touch in 92 I mean, rock music totally changed. Yeah. Like, if he would have come back and done another, like, old-school-sounding Bruce album, he would have sounded like a relic. Like, I think he knew he had to change some way. But 57 Channels is definitely a very, like, homemade, like, big swing version of that that I know some people think it's kind of embarrassing, but I always thought it was sort of charming for that reason. Yeah, I like it. Sam is such a scholar that he actually compiled sort of like a adjunct listening material kind of folder for us. So to kind of get us up to date in terms of like everything else that was going on in Bruce's uh, creative life at this time. And one of the things was a concert where he debuts a lot of these songs uh, in sort of different, more stripped down versions and I just wanted to point out how funny it is that in the early version of uh, 57 Channels, he says something like, uh, you know, if we we might have gotten hot and horny if we could have made it upstairs. And then uh, for the album version, he changes it to we might have gotten nice and friendly if we made it upstairs. <laughs> hot and horny, baby. Yeah, the show Andy's talking about is this incredible live set he did in 1990. It's known as the Christic Shows. I think it was for Jackson Brown's charity. Huge recommendation, um, because this is sort of halfway in the midpoint of the hiatus he takes. He plays this show, and it's 
his first ever full-length solo performance, which is kind of wild. But he debuts a lot of this material, and most of it, to me, sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, even songs I don't really love on Human Touch, like Real World, yeah, I, I think, sound. Yeah, the, the version of Real World on there is beautiful. It's stunning. I, I, like, I couldn't believe it was the same song. If you're at that show, you're probably sitting there thinking, like, oh my god, like, his next album's gonna be a masterpiece. Yeah. He does it like a kind of Neil Young piano tune or something. It's funny because the the studio version is like part of part and parcel like an example of some what if somebody would say Human Touch is overproduced, it would be real world, I think. Right. And then so on the record, it's like my number one least favorite production choice on a Bruce album is this fucking bell. There's a, there's a bell in the lyrics, so right? So yeah. I got to put a bell in the song. It's so bad. <laughs> I don't I don't hate it, I'll be honest. I, I I do like sort of some of the more questionable production decisions on this album. Like anytime the synths come in, I'm like, I do sort of want more of that. Yeah. Um like I like that sort of like streets of Philadelphia kind of vibe that you like start to get on these records. I like the title track and like some of the, the smoother yeah. stuff on here a lot. And the title track uh, did pretty well as a radio hit, actually, right? Yeah, this is a great song. Um, I also know that the great Tegan and Sarah have a line from this song tattooed on each of them. Whoa. One of them has this one. In the end, what you don't surrender, the world just strips away. Damn, that's sick. What a great that's line. A great line. Respect yeah. to Tegan and Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a cool song, and it's definitely the one from this album that I think has lasted in his set lists. It's cool because it's almost sort of structured like an E Street epic. You know, like it goes on a little longer than you think it's going to, and it kind of like reaches a peak and then sort of bottoms out again and reaches another peak. But like it's you know, on the record, it's done in this sort of somewhat like sterile, smooth way. And like, it's cool to hear like the form of like a Big E Street song sort of imposed onto like these different, like, you know, session musician type sonics. Yeah, I really like the band sound on the first two songs. Mm. Soul Driver, I really like, I prefer the piano version at, that he played at that show, but. Yeah. I really love how long it takes until he starts singing. It just really, I just like how it slowly settles into this groove. It, I don't know. It's one of, I actually probably one of my favorite, like one two punches of a Bruce album, just because it sort of sets your expectations for this like bar room, sort of dusky, moody Bruce album that doesn't actually follow. Totally. Like, it begins with a guitar solo, which is kind of rare for him. Iconic 90s drum sound here. Yeah. Jeff Porcaro, right? Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, totally. The, the, fir- the first three songs or so, to me, set the bar high for this album in terms of, like, what I would want from a 90s Bruce Springsteen album, you know, or, like, the follow-up for Tunnel of Love in the early 90s. It's like, okay, yes. Like these, yeah, you know, these three, this is it. And then it kind of wades into like, I don't know, by the time you get to 
all or nothing at all. That song is dreadful I, to me. I, hate, I really hate that song. I mean, the whole everything after that, except I wish I were blind, which I really like. Yeah, um, yeah, that song's beautiful, and so is Pony Boy. I think. Yeah, I wish I were blind. The lyrics. This is like reminds me of the Western Stars thing, where it's like totally Western Stars being his 2016 album that is influenced by Jimmy Webb and like a certain kind of uh, sleek 60s pop songwriting. Um, this feels like him trying to write really sparingly and classically in that kind of vein and in the tunnel of love vein. But yeah, the, gene- the quote genericness of these lyrics is like good to me. It's like, oh, he's yeah. just writing like showing his extreme skill at writing lyrics he's like he's writing to like a concept in the same way that a lot of those kind of like 60s pro songwriters were yeah for listeners who aren't familiar with the song the whole sort of premise of the song is like you know i see all these beautiful things but then when i see you with your new man it makes me wish i was blind uh and he's you know he's just sort of writing to that theme but in a very disciplined way but i want to return to (laughs) To me, All or Nothing at All, followed by Man's Job, mm, rough. is maybe like the worst. But to me, that's like as bad as any music we've discussed on <laughs> this podcast, even on our Chicago podcast. I was like, I feel like I'm listening to like Chicago 16 right now. What did you hate to, so much about them? Uh, I guess All or Nothing at All, I mean... The premise of the song is sort of offensive by 2021 standards where he's like, you know, sort of don't even come near me if, if you're not going to fuck me, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's like what I get from this song. And then Man's Job, I think I have a more nuanced critique of, which is that like, I mean, something that I've really come to love about Springsteen, you know, he has this kind of image as like Mr. Hyper-Masculine Tough Guy but, you know, a lot of his lyrics are actually expressing, like, discomfort with that archetype and, like, his failures to measure up to it. And to me, that's, like, very relatable. And then in Man's Job, he's just kind of saying, like, you know, your boyfriend's a little boy and I'm a real man. And to me, it's, like, sort of disappointing. It's, like, kind of playing into this, like, what people would criticize Springsteen for being that he isn't really to me, but he's sort of, like, actually being that in that song, so... I think that's a good point where it's like in trying to avoid what Bruce thought were the trappings of his music, he actually ends up hitting a lot of those cliches throughout this record, just almost like accidentally. For me, the low point is Real Man by far. Actually, I kind of like Man's Job just as like a sort of the way I wish I were blind is a bit of like an exercise. To me, Man's Job is too. And I just like it melodically. I love that little guitar part that goes through it. I like his delivery. It kind of sells it for me, but definitely don't think it's the most uh, <laughs> progressive in a gender <laughs> context. I mean, you got this. I mean, the fact that you have man's job and real man on this yeah. si- on this side, and they're the, the concepts are not far enough away from each other. Yeah, I'm really grateful Twitter didn't exist when this album dropped because the idea of a Bruce tracklist that had a song called Real Man and Man's Job and, and Real World and Pony Boy. Pony <laughs> Boy. Real Man and like, Pony Boy. I, yeah. I don't have the sympathy for Pony Boy that you guys do. I don't know. I just, oh, I just think it's sweet. I just, yeah, I think it's just like a sweet little capstone on this record. I'm kind of like... And I was also like, his guitar playing just sounds really nice to me on this. Like... Pony Boy. 
I kind of looked at the credits expecting this to be one of the session guys playing the guitar here. Uh, yeah, I just I found myself singing this to my to myself for yeah, a while. Yeah, I sing this to myself I, all the time. <laughs> uh, I don't care for it. Yeah, well, a good yeah. This song to me is kind of like. Uh, just like the lyrics about Rambo and stuff, it feels very like when I'm having arguments about pe- with people about people who hate his music. I imagine this is blaring in their heads when I'm like, "Oh, his music's so powerful and nuanced <laughs> yeah. and melodically interesting." I thought the same thing, kind of about this album in general. Even though there are moments of it that I like, I did have almost the same takeaway of like. This sounds to me the way that I think Springsteen's music sounds to people who hate it in general. But it's also like why a five-year-old kid just getting into Springsteen would love it, you know, because it really is like the cartoon Springsteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you know, which is just ironic because he was trying so hard not to do that. That's funny. I mean, the, listening to Real Man, Man Job, that shit, and then you realize that he spent like two, three years on this like poking yeah. away at this stuff and there were like 25 unrecorded so- something like so many outtakes so yeah. many outtakes and you end up with this album that's sort of what i was kind of asking earlier is like what happened like how do we get to this album here's the answer which is like we talk about all or nothing at all andy you say is like one of your least favorites you know who loved it is springsteen <laughs> like he played that song like I think maybe on the High Hopes tour, and he's like, "This is one of my lost masterpieces." Wow! Really? And I think it's like tongue—it's tongue in cheek a little, but at the time, there's a Rolling Stone interview with him from the period where the interviewer is like, "Well, once you had that wave of inspiration at the end of the sessions and made Lucky Town, what did you think about scrapping the Human Touch material?" Yeah, you know, because this is a guy who scraps like so many of his best songs, you know. And Bruce was like, yeah, I thought about it, but when I listened to it, I liked it. Which is like, you know, that's all you need. Like, yeah, you yeah, liked the too, record. Yeah. I did not read that, but I had that thought listening to Lucky Town today. I do feel like there's an alternate universe where he just releases Lucky Town, scraps Human Touch, and like his career is not scathed at all. Right. To me, it's considerably better as a record. It's not this kind of like grotesque, like bloated thing that Human Touch kind of is. It feels so much more like sort of a classic Springsteen album. To me, like the excess is part of why this period seems like sort of unappealing. I imagine this is a huge argument among Springsteen fans. How would you create the perfect one album of these of these two albums? I would definitely sprinkle in stuff from the other record to because I, I don't. Too, I, yeah. I, I there's some stuff on this that I don't. I don't know. I'm curious which ones you guys really like because I feel like. I had a feeling listening to it that maybe ones that I didn't really get into were ones that people liked. For me, there's like real classics on this album, which I wouldn't say is true of Human Touch. They're just kind of like undeniable in his catalog, important moments. To quickly tell the story of, of how this one coming about. Yeah, so at the end of the very end of the Human Touch sessions, which had gone on way longer than the label had hoped, he thought the album needed one more song. And so he writes the song called Living Proof, which is about the birth of his first child. And the song feels tapped into something new. And instead of just tacking it onto the album, he's like, I need to follow this thread. Ends up writing 
a full album with only one outtake, the song called Happy, that I think is also pretty good. That's a cool song, and, yeah. Yeah, and ends up deciding to release the two albums at once, Human Touch being this thing he kind of worked over in the studio with Sessions musicians, Lucky Town being this thing he bashed out pretty much on his own with a few other people, including American Idol's Randy Jackson on bass. Mm. Who um, played on Under the Red Sky, too, right? Yeah, a late-era icon. We're, we're back to the aesthetic palette of Under the Red Sky a little bit. In it does. Yeah. It, this does feel like a. it's related somehow to, to Utters, <laughs> yes. as we call it. Yeah, so we get this like drier, more personal, more kind of bashed-out emotional album to accompany Human Touch out on the same day and shorter this is like four, 40 minutes as opposed to a full hour for human touch yeah the the one that i um i don't really like living proof very much um whoa do you ever get this thing of just i mean i don't th- i feel like there's plenty of music that we all like that adheres to this but sometimes i just sort of when you get the sense that something's just reading off a lyric sheet as fast as they can mm-hmm. Or like you feel you can sense the lyric sheet, kind of like the notebook paper. Yeah, there's a couple of moments like that on Human Touch. Where it's yeah. like you're just really racing to get these words that you wrote into this line. And, and this one is like that for me, where I'm like, okay, I get that this is interesting on a personal level, but I don't find this musically to be compelling at all. Yeah, I think there's a better version of that song. I actually really like the version on that MTV plugged concert he did a year later. Um, but I love that song. To me, that song is really emotional and powerful. Um, and I do really like the lyrics, so maybe it's just I'm more forgiving. So, so, some of these songs, this album in particular, made me think of that tension. Like, what do I want out of Bruce? Like, a lot of these lyrics are just really show his maturity as a songwriter at this point like even the shitty generic ones for what they are they're like well done you know it's not a thing that i want to like hear necessarily but there's a tremendous command of the craft of lyric writing throughout all of these and whether or not he has very much to say in the case of lucky town i was like oh i get why this is like raw and people and there's good lyrics and autobiography people want to hear that but then like musically what it what it, like this has so much less than tunnel of love or something to you know what i mean like just like worlds apart musically to me um right. so it really is just like it feels like listening to like a lesser dylan album for me or something and like i mm. i think i want something more than reading off the lyric sheets from bruce whereas <laughs> i i uh with dylan i have a different i just made me think of like what is that sort of locus the main thing that I want from a Bruce Springsteen song or something, I guess, if that yeah. makes any sense. I think part of that is an issue I have with both these albums, because as much as I love Springsteen and as much as I have listened to these albums a ton, I don't think either of them ever really transcends. There's never that moment that makes you feel like it is fully inspired and fully a cohesive vision you know, that's why they kind of rank lower for me in his catalog. But that also makes them compelling to me. The idea that you can hear him searching and that he's allowing himself to do things on record that he never had up to that point. Mm. Um, because I, I think about this a lot in the context of Bruce, where I'm like, what is so impressive to me is the consistency of the vision in his music or the narrative he's telling from album to album. 
I don't think there's a lot of artists like that where you don't really have a period where he loses focus of the story. He comes in danger of it a little on Human Touch, but he kind of gets back on track with this. Like when I hear Living Proof, I think of it in the context of all his songs about fathers, which in the past are these tortured, sort of pained, haunted things. And then his very first song about being a father is just spilling over with affection and joy and hope. And for me, that makes it a really emotional moment. And so when I listen to it, that's kind of what's going on in my head, you know? And I think for that reason, it's pretty alone in his catalog, especially at that point as a moment of kind of pure happiness. And I think at its best, Lucky Town serves that purpose for him. It's like, oh, I can also write when I feel fulfilled and when I'm willing to laugh at myself a little and when there's something more than making a perfect record that matters to me. Yeah. To me, that's the narrator of Lucky Town. Totally. That comes across so much more clearly on Lucky Town to me than it yes. does on Human Touch. Maybe the the music on, on Lucky Town just feels so much... It feels unencumbered in the same way that the kind of perspective of the lyrics is unencumbered of like, you know, like in Better Days, he's talking about sort of like making this new start in his life and kind of seeing a happy future in front of him. And Lucky Town really sounds that way to me. Like it just, it's like loose, it's bright, it has this natural energy to it. And even though he's singing about the same sort of thing on Human Touch, the music does sort of feel more labored over, even when it is generic. Like it just doesn't have the same spark of life in it. And and that the fact that Lucky Town becomes this kind of holistic thing where the music is like expressing the same sort of thing that the lyrics are expressing is what makes it to me like head and shoulders above human touch. Yeah, I think that's a good point. If you compare like If I Should Fall Behind, which is another song on this, I think is a total classic. Yeah, if you compare that to something like I Wish I Were Blind, like they're both really pretty love songs, but this one to me, the stakes are so much higher yeah. and it's so much personal. And you imagine a person he's singing it to as opposed to I Wish I Were Blind when you're kind of imagining just like the storybook surrounding. Yeah. That's very true. Baby, come what may. That come the twilight. To me, the energy on the two albums is very different. One of them is like a kind of disciplined quote vibe for Bruce and the other one is in a different area but in the best moments on both of them they kind of find a middle ground and I think that song is a perfect example of like control and beauty and just just marinating in all the things that are good about Bruce you know um, distilled into one place I don't know I'm just kind of playing a bit of devil's advocate <laughs> for oh, yeah, for yeah. like for this album um, and just trying to think about it divorced a bit from the context of it you know yeah i mean there's definitely things that make it not stand up with his best work there's a few songs where i'm like i you know like book of dreams i don't think is particularly memorable you know leap of faith is kind of silly like there's definitely songs that do feel like padding out an lp even with such a short track list no i mean i really like better days local hero if I should fall behind. Um, 
For some reason, I, I really get in the big... I like to get waist deep in the big muddy, you know? Me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like that one too. Even though, even it, it's, here it's I was weird. Like talking shit on like pseudo blues and the honking on Bobo episode or whatever. You know? Yeah, but this, this has a whole this other is a thing bayou. going on. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not, it's nothing like that. But I mean, this both of, the best of these things have a little bit of some kind of conti- continuation of the tunnel of love. Ambience. Totally. So. This one reminds me of like I'm like are the war on drugs into uh, into Lucky Town. Yeah, I was just talking about that with Winston. How when I interviewed Adam from the War on Drugs a few years ago, and early on in the conversation, we started talking about outtakes from Human Touch that he loves. And I was like, okay, if if we're talking like '90s Bruce outtakes, this guy is like knows his stuff. Yeah, that's tight. Yeah. He definitely, I remember him saying he loves the song Happy. Just kind of like a real contented ballad. I imagine this was probably the album Closer before he wrote My Beautiful Reward. Just a better song. Also love that song. That's a great one. For a drug to take away the pain that a living brings. Classic, uh, like major seven chord vibe happening in this verse. When would Mm. Yeah. I don't Western Stars chord. Yeah. All I know since I found you are happy I'm in your Yeah, I like this better than uh, my beautiful reward, I think. Wow. This is beautiful. It sounds like the war on drugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, another one that I thought is sick is Souls of the Departed. Mm. Yeah, there's uh, the political moment. Yeah. And I like the sound of that song, too, because it reminds me of sort of like Adam raised a cane kind of thing of like we are. It's just like Springsteen doing almost like a hard rock thing, but it's kind of like sculpted. It's like. To me, this song really takes advantage of the fact that it's sort of like a product of the studio um, rather than like something that like the E Street Band was working out on stage. Like the the guitar, the, this like slide guitar playing is so sort of like textural. Like it doesn't sound like something that you would necessarily be doing if you needed to be like kind of holding down the rhythm section of the song. And I like that. The music is kind of like leaning into the fact that it's like a studio thing rather than a live thing in, in a cool way. Yeah. Uh, as, There's that sample in it too at the beginning. I just don't like... Think that guitar riff in anything I struggle with. It's like a car commercial. Like <laughs> It's like a stock blues riff. I don't know. Yeah, like a ZZ Top. Another one where I, I like the lyrics and I get I get the appeal, but I just struggle with the music. Yeah, I kind of wanted to interrogate your the things about Springsteen that keep you at arm's length from him, Winston, because we overlap on a lot of stuff, but I do feel like there is sort of a block with something that's as meat and potatoes as Springsteen allows himself to be that is like anathema to what you like no I mean I love Bruce Springsteen I I tend to like every couple years get into another album and really really get into it and listen to it all the time 
as opposed to someone like Dylan, where I'm just like living it all the time or something, <laughs> like having a shifting, like a, another being in my life or something, or Joni or something like that. Um, yeah, I think it's just there's there's maybe a predilection to not love like the two chord stuff as much and like guitar stuff as much as other people maybe i don't know it's like if stuff is kind of like stock musically to me and then i'm listening into other things it can be really rewarding or it could not hit the right balance or something for me yeah i sometimes think like training myself on springsteen at a really formative age it was a huge entry point into music but i think it also then took me a while it like sort of taught me to value certain things over other things. Like I remember the first time I got into Morrissey, who was like maybe the next artist that I like made my whole identity around when I was a teenager. And I remember like first hearing Morrissey and he would make jokes in his songs and be like, I'd be like, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. Like Springsteen was so serious and you know, and then like I think about other stuff. I like Steely Dan, who I didn't like for a long time because I was just like it's too fussy or there's no real like punch to it. Yeah. Like just things I had. Or Elvis Costello took me a really long time to get into. I still am not crazy about him, but just that idea of someone who was like winking while singing. I think like Springsteen can be funny, and it's definitely like an underrated thing about his music. But I think the seriousness of it really imprinted itself onto me and became something I like sought like your life better be on the line if you're singing and writing songs it was like really you know that was kind of my understanding of rock songwriting I sort of started with funny you know and fussy I feel like I feel like when I start when I was getting into the first music that was sort of good that I still like uh I was also really into comedy. I was also into like Monty Python and stuff. So I was very like the humor of like Randy Newman or even the Beatles or Dylan completely slotted in with that with me. And I was into the, to the weirdness and the brokenness of it. And, you know, I was just a guy playing piano and also like grew up on jazz and stuff. So that's like, I, I would like to think that I've come way beyond that in my tastes and like certainly Springsteen in high school I got into, but it, yeah, it's always kind of the moodier, the stuff where the music and lyrics sync up. And my, my first favorite was darkness and just kind of, there's like such a mood there and similar to what I love about tunnel of love. The mood of, of something like this is being like a loose rock celebration is cool but it's just not going to be the thing that i love as much as something that's a little subtler from him my my entry point to his music after um years of like tolerating to disliking it when hearing it from my parents was 10th avenue freeze out mm-hmm. like you know many years ago but i what i responded to was exactly that sort of loose rock and roll quality of like mm-hmm. oh this is actually just like a sick kind of like garagey R&B like just fun song with like amazing playing on it uh so maybe that has to do with with why I I found myself drawn to Lucky Town because it has that same kind of like lack of pretension and sort of uh just like sense of liveliness and fun yeah I mean I I should try to draw a distinction like my f- the f- the first Springsteen song I really remember loving and getting my head blown off by was Adam Raised It Came because it was so fucking I thought it was the most intense thing 
I'd ever heard. I was not prepared for that when I put that record on. Yeah, it's so heavy. And so it's those kind of inhabiting those moods, um, even if it is towards that end of things that I respond to. So something like the Big Muddy is is in a zone for me in a way that I like. Mm. And All or Nothing at All is in kind of no aesthetic zone for me to speak of. All or Nothing at All reminds me of the songs that I don't like on the river. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of like, ooh, ooh, I got a crush on you. Right. It's just like, why are we here? <laughs> like, what are we even doing right now? Well, the thing with the river is like, you can justify those songs because the album is, it feels like a set list. And yeah, its concert yeah. set lists always have like Twist and Shout and like yeah, those kinds totally. of old timey covers. So those songs are like filling that role. And so, but then if you look at Human Touch the same way, it's a real downer of a show. Yeah. You know, yeah. because they're, and so to me, that's why it's like there's kind of two types of Springsteen albums. There's the type like Lucky Town and like where it's like Darkness on the Edge of Town, Nebraska, where it's this really focused, mm-hmm. like this is the voice of this album. This is the message. This is the material. And then there's the kind where it's like he's sort of showing his versatility and letting right. himself. The Bruce fill Springsteen in. review. Exactly. Album. Yeah. And Human Touch, to me, the flaw with it is it wants to be that type of album, but he's in the mind space of the other type of album. Oh, yeah. Where. I think there's like a cool short album you can make out of those songs and some of the outtakes that would be a lot more effective. But as it is, to me, it's just like, I like, I return to Human Touch a lot just because it is interesting to hear him flail and just to hear him searching for something because he's such a perfectionist and he's so in control of his narrative. I feel like, you know, he's kind of like in the last 10 years, I'd say, maybe let it slip a little you know on albums like high hopes that kind of are like well you know anything goes there's covers and whatnot but like at the time to do something that was so like it wore its flaws on its sleeve i always am fascinated by albums like that i i find that fascinating about it too i also think it kind of plays out you're saying a set list it kind of plays out like if you took strip the production away it could be like here are a bunch of songs Springsteen wrote in a concerted period of time to like sell to other artists. Right. You know, like these are demo tapes of songs that he yeah, is totally. intending for someone other than himself to potentially sing, you know. Once again, this episode of Late Era is brought to you by the fine folks at Grady's Cold Brew. <sighs> Sounds a so good. wonderful, small, independently owned, local to us business in the Bronx, churning out the best damn cold coffee you are likely to find in New York City or anywhere else. Whether you're brewing with the kit, whether you are buying bottles in your local grocery store, you are simply getting a smooth, high energy, classy, just all around great coffee. You're not going to regret it. Take it from us. We've been drinking it for years and, uh, and we love it. Order your Grady's from Grady'sColdBrew.com with the product code LATEERA20. There's a lot of scrapped albums after these two. I think because he was a little freaked by the public reception, didn't totally know what to do next. The next official release is a mini E Street reunion. He got him back together to do some new songs for greatest hits. Immediately disbanded them again, put out 
really beautiful solo album called Ghost to Tom Joad. Toured that for a long time. And then finally got the E Street Band back together, moved back to Jersey. That's uh, the Bruce Springsteen we know and love today. So it's a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the final section of the show uh, is called Fantasy or Delusion. This is where we give our final judgment on the records we're talking about. The title is based on the Billy Joel opus of modern classical solo piano music, Fantasies and Delusions. Basically, if an album's good, we call it a fantasy. If it's bad, we call it a delusion. For these albums, we can issue separate rulings on each I would say that for me, Human Touch is a delusion and Lucky Town's a fantasy. Uh, I do feel like, you know, had he just sort of scrapped Human Touch or gone or, you know, compiled them into one album, like the story of this period might be a little different for him. Uh, Lucky Town just has a spark that uh, Human Touch doesn't have. Although I will say there are moments on Human Touch sort of at its weird, weirdest, like 57 channels. That's really cool to me. I kind of like the idea of Springsteen as this like East Coast guy uh, going West. Like it reminds me of like John Steinbeck going to Hollywood and sort of like hitting the rails when he gets out there. Like there, there's something sort of beautiful, tragic about like the narrative of Springsteen in LA, like flailing around I like that as an idea, maybe more than I like the music. But Lucky Town uh, is one that I would actually recommend, like, you know, to the casual or to the semi-serious Springsteen fan in my life. I think I would say, like, hey, you should check out Lucky Town because it's probably better than you expect it to be. And I'm not sure that I would say the same about Human Touch. Uh, Well, call me John Lennon and Yoko Ono because it's a double fantasy for me. (laughs) Um, Big surprise. Well, I think something I've noticed as I've gotten older is the one thing that all my favorite artists have in common is that I'm constantly changing my opinion of their work. I'm just, my feelings about it are always in flux, which is why I can like come to a Dylan record or a Joni record like over and over again and every time be like, oh, like I, you know, I was wrong about this. It's like something I'm not really allowed to do as a music critic because like once you write a review, that's kind of like your take. But with artists like that, I feel like the fun of it for me or what I love about them is that, I, you know, as I get older, my relationship changes. And that's really true with these records, especially because I've known them since I was a little kid. And back then, you know, I don't know what he means when he says waist deep in the big muddy. Like, I don't know. Do you know know. what that means today? Oh, I do. I'm not going to say it because you're not allowed to say it on a podcast. (laughs) But I think like I love having both of these albums to turn to. And I love hearing Human Touch as an album that Bruce in 1992 liked, like would listen to on his own. It's kind of like his fantasy of what he wants to hear when he goes to a bar and forget that he's Bruce Springsteen. And for me, that's a cool enough like if this album was in the vaults, like he chose not to release it, and then I heard it, I would be like, that would be an awesome album in his catalog. Like, just weird. And I think the outtakes from it, songs like Sad Eyes um, and Loose Change are songs that I, you know, are just like in my, I love those songs and I love the mindset he was in at the time. Lucky Town is a fantasy just because it has stuff like If I Should Fall Behind and Living Proof 
and Better Days, which are just songs I love and to me are like, you know, like up there, not in his like top 10 or anything, but like, you know, great songs, important songs in his catalog. And they moved the story forward. He hadn't written anything like it in the past. It allowed him to write stuff that came later. Um, yeah, I love this guy's records. Big fan. <laughs> I'm probably going to say something surprising uh, and give them both a fantasy. Wow. Um, and my and I am going to talk about it kind of as a whole because I I think for me, I like it as like a body of definitely very imperfect work to wade through where like there are songs in here that I can definitely see myself wanting to like listen to a whole bunch. I like the produced Springsteen. I'm like receptive to that as an extension of Tunnel of Love and like the the kind of essentialist songwriting that detaches itself from like the bigger visions or even his autobiography. And like I, I could see myself kind of living with these songs privately and wanting to like listen to them more than I actually might be inclined to listen to like a major Bruce album like that I've heard a ton or is so much in the cultural woodwork. And maybe that's like a contextual thing, but I I also think that this, the outtakes that you sent, Sam, roping that in, like for me, it's a fantasy because I, I enjoyed sifting through this. Something about some moments in human touch, even I was like, do I like this record better than Lucky Town? I don't know. Like, do I like this weird nook and cranny i like him being caught in this moment and more than talking about listening to x album because it's a lost classic i'd be like this song is really awesome like i wish i were blind like i would listen to this i put this on a mix or something so viewing it in that way it's hard it's hard for me to think like something that's totally alone in somebody's catalog totally alone meaning like we're talking about this one because it is unlike everything else he did in a way that is appropriate for the vibe that we like to dig into here and the fact that it stands on its own makes me less likely i guess to give it a delusion because it's like well why does it stand on its own you know <laughs> like right. i think i care more about that honestly than like sifting through the differences between certain like two like 2000 stuff you know this troubled vibe rather than this total command is interesting to me if that makes sense that's my fantasy ruling. There you go. Bruce Springsteen winning new fans by the minute. Is that, is that me? A new fan? I'm, I'm not a real Springsteen fan yet, I guess. Even though I've listened to so much Springsteen. <laughs> if you like Human Touch and if you love these records and think they're fantasies, I would say that makes you like on a next level a of super, Springsteen A super fan. fan, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was lovely, guys. Sam, it was, it was great to hear you talk about your relationship with Springsteen. Yes. Oh, it was a pleasure. Well, next week we'll be talking about another great album. We'll be talking about Ringo Starr's All You Need Is Love, All I Want Is Peace and Love, uh, which is his of collection of Beatles covers from his perspective. Wow. When did that come out? Uh, this one hasn't been released yet. <laughs> exclusive. Later exclusive. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Ladera is hosted and produced by Winston Cook Wilson, Andy Cush, and Sam Sadomsky. It is edited by Winston Cook Wilson and mixed and mastered by Ian Wayne. The executive producers of Late Era are Brian Brinkman and RJB. Logo designed by Liz B. Art and Design. Late Era is a part of Osiris Media. Just me.